It is Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, we take a trip back to 1984, when Arkansas tried a new method for voting for a presidential candidate. Caucuses are really, they're not easy. I mean, they're, 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 they're hard, and, and it requires a lot of people power. Plus, a new program that looks to help food-related businesses grow. I want to be in this wholesale cohort because I struggle with B2B sales. I'm having a hard time getting my foot in the door at the wholesale level. And the latest installment in the new series, T, the transgender experience in Arkansas. Being able to be open with your parents and your family about who you are really helps with mental health. There are so many trans kids, especially, who aren't able to tell anyone about how they feel, and that's a, it's a massive weight. Before that, the latest news from NPR. Good Wednesday. This is Ozarks at Large for February 7th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Ahead on our show, an initiative designed to help food-related businesses grow in Northwest Arkansas. We hear from Kim Bryden about Curate and their work in our second half hour. First up, we are officially less than a month away from the Arkansas primary elections. The election on March 5th will include the race for Arkansas Supreme Court Chief Justice as well as some partisan elections. But back in 1984, this springtime election process looked a lot different. If you hear the word caucus, you very well might say, huh, that's a weird word that means nothing to me. For you political junkies, you might think about Iowa. But in March of 1984, Arkansas held its first ever caucus and its last. Part of it was to move up in the presidential calendar to gain more stature. That's Skip Rutherford. And I am Dean Emeritus of the University of Arkansas Clinton School of Public Service. So reason number one, move up in the calendar to have more sway on the presidential nominee. And the second part of it was everybody was sort of infatuated with Iowa. I mean, this is a pretty cool deal. You know, you're going in caucus. We've never done anything like that. We had primaries in Arkansas. And in 1976, we had in the Democratic primary, we had for the presidency, we had about 500,000 votes, and in, in the 1980 primary, it was about 440,000 votes. People thought, well, let's, let's give the caucus a, a whirl. But let's take a step back. If you were one of those people who said, huh, that's a weird word that means nothing to me, we should probably define terms here. A primary election is much more common and familiar. Just like in a general election, in a primary, you show up to your polling place at your convenience throughout the day, you receive a ballot, you vote, and you turn it in. What a caucus looks like is that it was broken out, you were broken out by precincts, and several precincts were then sent to various locations where you cast votes. So just imagine a lot of caucuses were held in churches or schools or various places. You showed up Saturday morning, March 17th, signed in, and all around the room were groups holding posters supporting the different candidates. One for Walter Mondale, one for Gary Hart, a sign for Jesse Jackson, and one that said undecided. 
so people would be greeting you at the door and trying to usher you over to the Hart crowd or to the Jackson crowd or to the Mondale crowd. It's confusion. It's chaos. That's John Davis, the executive director of the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Iowa handles it better than most because they've done it a long time. But still in Iowa, you see hiccups. Um, It's very rule heavy. Um, We think of a primary as sort of this discrete thing, even with early voting. It's really nice and tidy and then boom, it's done. Caucuses are set up in rounds where, you know, certain candidates got certain votes. So now we're going to do this all over again. And you can move across your gymnasium over here. If now you like these other candidates that are still here and they went on out, it gets really confusing. And there's a lot of rules and credentialing who gets to participate. Are you in the right precinct? Are you qualified to participate at all? As Rutherford said earlier, a half million Arkansans voted in the 1976 primary. The 1984 caucus turnout was drastically lower. The prediction by some officials was a turnout near 40,000. But about 20,000 voters actually participated in the 1984 caucus. Reporting from the Arkansas Democrat the following day said some districts had as few as two people attend, with many rural districts counting single-digit turnout. For one, it was time-consuming. Arkansans were not used to that. Uh, We unfortunately do not participate in a lot of these elections at the rate that we should. Uh, And so even fewer of us participated in this 84 caucus. The presidential candidates for the Democratic Party that felt like they had to deal with Arkansas a little bit more, frankly, were not happy with it. They had to spend more time and resources down here, which was part of the whole point why we wanted to have a caucus. Uh, But at the end of the day, with low turnout, confusion, a lot of hurt feelings, uh, disorganization, those those candidates then began to resent the process and, and were very unhappy with us. Some Arkansans were unhappy with the system as well. One person wrote a letter to the editor in the Arkansas Gazette that said that the new caucus system effectively disenfranchised 400,000 Arkansans. He points out that Arkansans such as nurses, firemen, postal workers, and doctors must work on Saturdays and therefore were ineligible to participate. Another letter writer from Arkadelphia notes the low turnout. He says, The turnout from my precinct could have met in a closet. Rutherford says the low turnout was a major concern, but it was also a logistical nightmare to coordinate a statewide caucus in more than 700 precincts. Caucuses are really, they're not easy. I mean, they're, 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 they're hard and, and it requires a lot of people power just you know, to, to, um, I mean, there's no, I mean, you got to have people there. You got to have people lining, you know, counting people as they walk in. It's not like you, you know, have election officials where you just go in and you get your ballot and you run it into a machine and you, you, you get out of there. This was very uh, labor intensive. And when you only have 20,000 people, I mean, you go from a primary of 440,000 to 20,000, you clearly got to say, woo. This was not participatory democracy at its best. So I think it was, you know, an experiment that didn't work and certainly wasn't worth trying again. In 1988, the next presidential cycle, Arkansas returned to a primary style election. 
At this time, primary elections were still being run by the political parties. And at this time, Arkansas was a one-party state, run almost exclusively by Democrats. Davis says this meant that many meaningful elections happened in the primary, not in November at the general election. That in its own way limits the ability of people's voices to be heard just because it's a single party state, right? So they could vote in the general election, but in some ways they're, they're disenfranchised. Because the political parties ran the primary elections, they also controlled the polling places. There were instances where a county might have one place to vote in a GOP primary. And this was not that long ago. We're talking late 80s, early 1990s. And at that time, uh, then Republican Party Chairman Asa Hutchinson uh, sued the, the state of Arkansas. And the case was Republican Party of Arkansas v. Faulkner County. Um, and he argued on First and Fourteenth Amendment grounds that this violated people's uh, freedom of association. The courts ruled in Hutchinson's favor, saying it is unfair for the political parties to have unequal abilities to vote. And so at that point in time, the General Assembly got together uh, and with little drama and infighting, really, said, you know, the states should run these things. So since that point, we've had these state-run primaries. Interestingly enough, in this court case, and I just love these little tidbits of Arkansas political history, uh, if you ask Asa Hutchinson today who was the most supportive person for this reform from party-funded primaries to state-run primaries, it was Mike Beebe, State Senator Mike Beebe. Of course, later on in 2006, they've become rivals and they run for uh, governor. Um, and Mike Beebe's, of course, successful and goes on for two terms. But I, it's one of those fun moments of bipartisanship that I like to share. House Bill 1883 of the 1995 legislative session was called an act to provide for state-supported political party primary elections. It was signed into law by Democrat Governor Jim Guy Tucker. You can vote in this year's state-run primaries on March 5th. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. The Northwest Arkansas chapter of the NAACP will observe the anniversary of the formation of the national group on Monday evening at Theater Squared. The state NAACP president, Barry Jefferson, will speak. Kobe Davis, the Northwest Arkansas NAACP president, says this year's theme for Founders Day is for culture, for community. Well, I mean, obviously, the larger picture is the community. Um, We are here to serve the large community. But there are some very specific things with our culture that we need to address. And so in our community, there are things that impact minorities, people of color, people that are marginalized, that are things that need some attention. Davis says upcoming elections and questions about education in Arkansas are topics worthy of discussion. He says the state president will also likely discuss the importance of 
the NAACP. I think some people see that the NAACP was very relevant, um, you know, 100 years ago, um, and they have a harder time seeing its relevance today. I think that'll be part of what we'll talk about a little bit together uh, next Monday. The NAACP Founders Day observation is scheduled to begin Monday night at 630 at Theater Squared in downtown Fayetteville. It's open to the public. Five days after being selected to be the interim secretary of the Department of Corrections, Eddie Joe Williams announced he would be resigning from the position. Williams previously served as a state senator in Cabot and worked professionally for Union Pacific Railroad for nearly 40 years. He wrote a letter to the Corrections Board saying if he was unable to accomplish his goals while working with the Department of Corrections, he would gladly step aside. He goes on to say that this decision took on a life of its own, with assumptions being made by all the moment the motion was made to hire him. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Attorney General Tim Griffin, who are both embattled in lawsuits with the State Board of Corrections, bristled at the appointment originally. The governor's spokesperson said in a statement, The Board of Corrections knows that it is only the governor who selects and nominates the secretary. KUAF's Daily Word Game is a five-letter puzzle available to play right now, as in T-O-D-A-Y. Ugh. Okay. You might get the word if you listen to the Ozarks at Large A-U-D-I-O. Okay, okay. Maybe it's because I forgot to remind you that you can play the game at kuaf.com or by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter that shows up in your email, I-N-B-O-X. Well, maybe you'll have better luck than me. Go try your luck today. This is Ozarks at Large. For any organization or business, standing out in 2024 can be a test. There have never been more targets for our collective attention. Two recently launched cooperative initiatives are designed to help Northwest Arkansas entities gain some traction. In a moment, we'll learn more about Curate Courses. It's been initiated to help food-related businesses in the area grow. First, a trip to Bentonville to learn more about Goodmaker U and its work to help nonprofits succeed. So we're here uh, on 6th Street in Bentonville, close enough to downtown and close to uh, the momentary. A lot happening around here, a lot of construction, too. That's Jesse Lane with Goodmaker U in his downtown Bentonville office. Jesse and his team call the building Branches Mission Lab. It serves as a home for a marketing and fundraising agency, but also for Goodmaker U, the guiding force behind Ray's NWA. Ray's NWA is a partnership between Goodmaker U the Jones Center, and the Walmart Foundation to help 10 area nonprofits become successful. Over 14 months, Jesse and the Goodmaker U team will focus on important fundamentals of fundraising and storytelling with the nonprofits. So that people understand what they do. We often say that the confused mind always says no. And so if they're talking to potential donors or sharing with the community about what they do and people are scratching their head and confused, they're not going to raise much money. And so we help them get their message really tight and clear and help them know how to share that with the world. The name Goodmaker U is rooted in the idea that nonprofits aiding people are good makers. 
Jesse Lane says many of those organizations, especially smaller and mid-sized nonprofits, share a similar challenge. Successful fundraising that can help them fulfill a vision. So at Goodmaker U, we train them in marketing and fundraising, help them get the word out so they can reach more people and fulfill their big vision and mission. The 10 nonprofits participating in Ray's NWA were selected based on potential for growth and impact on the community. There is a diversity of size, mission, and experience. As Northwest Arkansas continues to grow, there can be a growing challenge to be front of mind with potential volunteers, supporters, and donors. There is competition, Jesse says, not between the nonprofit organizations in the region, but... They're competing with social media. They're competing with the news, right? And all these things, because all of those things are trying to get people's attention, right? And so it actually helps them realize, wow, I need to communicate more and better. I need to tell stories. And so we're always coaching them that you've got to raise the bar. You know, if the status quo for nonprofits can sometimes be a little lower. Oh, they don't have the resources. so It's not going to be as good. Um, but you can't get people's attention that way because people are, you know, uh, are struggling to find focus and, and get, you know, get people's attention. And so for a nonprofit leader, uh, it's just as hard and even more important, in my opinion. Jesse says the idea for Goodmaker U was influenced by his career in nonprofit work and watching as organizations struggled with being able to keep pace with things like digital marketing and being able to take advantage of effectively explaining what they do just had a heart for these causes and I knew I couldn't give millions of dollars, but I wanted to help, right? And I thought, well, could I use what I know, which is storytelling and marketing and fundraising to help more organizations by starting something like this and training more nonprofit leaders to do what I've learned over the years in my career. That starts, he says, with changing a mindset that can envelop small nonprofits that are trying just to survive from one month to the next to respond to client needs and emergencies something that doesn't really leave time for fundraising. And if you don't have the funds, then you can't do the good. You can't make more good and you uh, can't serve our community. And so they really have to have that side of it as well. And often they struggle to find time to do that because they're responding to all these urgent needs of our community all the time. He says for the first few weeks of the program, the nonprofits will be getting ready with Goodmaker U's help for NWA Gives, a region-wide effort in April concentrating on charitable giving. The members of the cohort will be developing strategies for their campaigns and will be identifying who to invite to give money. This first assignment is an example of the agenda for the duration of the Ray's NWA program. They get homework every week. We're checking it in on them, holding them accountable. Of course, it's a lot, so we understand that they may get behind a little bit, but we're helping them hit some of the milestones, like um, you know, communicating with your board about this, your goal, uh, getting your major donors involved, maybe getting a matching gift, and then you know, how are you posting on email or social media and, and sending emails to your list? And we have timelines for all of that to make sure they're staying on track. And I think that's why it helps so much to have our team, we're, we serve as coaches, right? And um, they may know they need to do some of this, but to have someone checking in on a weekly basis or daily sometimes, just kind of encouraging them and uh, troubleshooting with them, answering questions, that allows them to stay on track and get better results. There is a roadmap of success for previous similar programs. Jesse says a participant in such a project last year came to it stressed and overwhelmed, worried, that her donors were tapped out. And just not sure who to ask, felt like she needed new donors. But 
uh, as we went through our program together, she started growing in confidence and clarity, knowing, okay, I now I know what to say and who to talk with. And through the NWA Gives campaign that we worked with her on, uh, she went from raising about sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars to sixty thousand dollars, over sixty thousand uh, dollars, and on average, that cohort raised ten times more than they did the year before. And so that was just through a sixty-day program. So we've continued to work with this individual. She's in a local organization here, and since uh, she's been a part of this, their fundraising event, uh, they passed their goal. They. Uh, uh, exceeded their annual goal for fundraising. They're able to hire some more staff they needed to grow their uh, office space and have more impact there. And so all of that, and we asked her recently at the end of year, which is the end of year is a big deal for nonprofits and fundraising, but you know, what's your stress level like? And she was like, stress level zero, uh, because we're uh, at the first time ever, we were well prepared in advance for this campaign, and we've gotten the results and exceeded our goal. Jesse Lane with Goodmaker U met with me in Bentonville last week. We'll stay in touch as the Rays NWA cohort continues their work over the next 14 months. People in the food and hospitality industry face many of the same obstacles to success that the nonprofits participating in Ray's NWA do. For 20 farm, food, and hospitality businesses in Northwest Arkansas, there's a comparable program, Curate Courses. Kim Bryden is the CEO and founder of Curate. And our main goal at Curate is to really build this empowered food and beverage supply system where people feel equipped with the tools and resources needed to grow and scale their food operation. Curate Courses is a multi-week entrepreneurship program in partnership with Forge, a community-level financial institution. This year's program has 20 members, 10 from the wholesale side and 10 representing hospitality. The two groups are the sixth and seventh cohorts respectively to receive Curate guidance. Bryden says food and farm entrepreneurs can often find themselves at a culinary crossroads after starting their businesses. Maybe they're moving into farmers markets or eyeballing opportunities for pop-up events. Curate courses can help them determine the next step. So that might mean how to put together a wholesale sales sheet to get new buyers to be buying your products to put into grocery stores. Or it might mean coming up with an operational plan for your hospitality in building out your front of house program if you were to open a brick and mortar. It might also include leadership coaching. This is exactly why Mallory Files, owner of Ozark Charcuterie, applied to be in the program. I want to be in this wholesale cohort because I struggle with B2B sales. I, I'm having a hard time getting my foot in the door at the wholesale level because I want to sell my cups, my charcuterie cups and my charcuterie boats to local businesses like, um, like a coffee shop or a wine bar. Mallory says she's relatively new to this area and doesn't have many small business connections that she can rely upon for introductions. But she says she does have the expertise and the ideas that local coffee shops or wine bars might be interested in knowing more about. 
like her charcuterie cup. Is a little 12 ounce like fry cup full of like charcuterie goodness and it comes packaged beautifully. You can place it nicely on your shelves in a refrigerated shelf. And that, says Curate founder and CEO Kim Bryden, is exactly the sort of networking that can take place over the next several weeks. You might have an accountant or bookkeeper that you use, or you might know a photographer. But if you don't know who you don't know, how would you? (laughs) We have to build that social capital, too, not just access to financial capital. We have to know different networks of people. And so with us all learning together, we have that opportunity to share resources and share knowledge collectively and not just student teacher in a one-off workshop. We're excited about this because we're going to get to learn more of the business side of it. Mia Folden is owner of Cura Culinary Group, one of the 10 businesses in the hospitality cohort. So the sales, the numbers, um, which is really going to help us because we just haven't, we haven't really seen that side of it as managing as much as actually owning the restaurants or bars. So it's just really exciting to be able to have these leaderships and really just like the numbers, the accounting, the taxes, all of that. Both Mia and Mallory say the knowledge they're gaining and the networking they're conducting are valuable, as is the simple ability to share with 19 other farm, food, and hospitality businesses their shared pain points about operation and expansion of a small business. The cohorts meet each Wednesday morning for 90 minutes each week, focusing on a different business principle. And in between those Wednesday sessions are videos, private conversations, and worksheets to help narrow the goals for what each participant wants to accomplish. Along with Ozark Charcuterie and Cura Culinary Group are businesses trading in pepper, syrups, dairy, mushrooms, and chocolate. And Mallory Files says, as a charcuterie business, just a week in, she's already benefiting. Yes, yes. Um, One that I was really excited um, to meet or to even know that she was a part of this. uh, She owns a jam company (laughs) and charcuterie and jam. I'm always looking for honeys and uh, stuff like that. So I'm super, super excited to to get to know her. I mean, we're in the same cohort, which is kind of funny (laughs) um, because towards the middle, we're going to partner up with um, somebody from from the other cohort to create a dish. And so I'm a little bummed that we're in the same cohort, but I am just thrilled to make that connection with her because we've already talked and I'm like, do you make the two ounce little jars of jam? She's like, yes, I do. I'm like, I will be putting in an order. You just just (laughs) wait. Kim Bryden with Curate says this is an example of a prime motivator for the work Curate does, shifting dollars to local businesses. Curate uses hashtag shift the dollar to emphasize the power of local businesses working with local businesses. And we're trying to grow consumer awareness, as well as you just at your office building, at a hospital, at a university, where is that money being spent and with whom? And is there an opportunity for us to shift that dollar from a larger broadline purchase into a local small business? Because each one of those dollars matter. And every day we think you are an investor um, with how you purchase because you're really supporting that individual's growth with every single cent that you put into um, your purchasing decisions. Which is why, she says, the Curate Courses program includes businesses all along the supply chain, from farms to manufacturers to restaurateurs. And to make sure the cohort members are on a path to success, the course begins with an examination of each member's core values and a simple question, why? For Mia, with Cura Culinary Group, it's about passion. 
I guess my passion started with my first job. Like I, my first job was in hospitality. And from that, like I started as a host, I went into server and then I was a bar manager. Um, And it's just going through all that. I was able to learn so much about each aspect of the front of house, the hospitality side of it. And since then, I've just grown my love in that. Um, So I'm just very excited to be able to take what we want to give to the community and provide that. Curate courses will culminate with an event featuring all 20 businesses open to the public on Mount Sequoia April 4th, just days before the solar eclipse. It's called the Eclipse Food Festival. You can register for that event by searching for it at Eventbrite. And you can learn more about Curate at curate.co. That's C-U-R-E-A-T-E, curate.co. You can find them on Instagram as well. Plus, more about Ozark Charcuterie at ozarkcharcuterie.com and on Instagram. And Cura Culinary can be found on social media platforms as well. This is Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. The Transgender Experience in Arkansas, or T, is our series highlighting stories and experiences from transgender members of our community. On this episode, host Taylor Johnson talks with June Simmons, a 17-year-old trans woman. Simmons attends Fayetteville Virtual Academy and is taking computer science and engineering courses at the University of Arkansas. June, you were born male, but around age 14 in the fall of 2020, you realized that you're trans. How long have you been living as your new gender? I realized around September that year, and I came out to my parents uh, that coming January. My parents are very accepting, and I have really wonderful family, and I've been able to be myself for about two and a half years now. Uh, I've started socially coming out that winter, and then about... A year and a half later, I started on hormone blockers. And then very recently, I just started on Estradiol. So I'm on feminizing hormone therapy now. Do you think having a more accepting family has helped you in your journey? It, it is difficult to describe how much it benefits and how in how many different ways it is beneficial. Um You know, there's the very obvious effects of you're able to access medicine that you need and even just mental health, you know, being able to talk to a therapist and being able to be open with your parents and your family about who you are really helps with mental health. There are so many trans kids, especially, who aren't able to tell anyone about how they feel. And that's a it's a massive weight. And not having to deal with that is in- indescribably helpful and beneficial. Do you have any extended family that are LGBT that might have helped, you know, pave the way for you in terms of your coming out process? One of my dad's brothers is gay, and I've known that for a long time. It never really was a major thing to me, Um especially since he's not trans, that didn't necessarily pave the way for me quite as much. But one of my mom's siblings is, they're non-binary, 
they came out quite a few years ago as uh, a trans woman and then a little more recently uh, came out as non-binary and that has helped pave the way for me a lot it helps because I have family who already had the experience of knowing someone who's trans and switching names and how they refer to someone. What were the first few things that you initially explored when you were discovering your trans identity and affirming it for yourself? I had some LGBTQ friends. Uh, I don't think at the time I knew anyone who was trans other than my mom's sibling. And so I wanted to know a little more about trans people. And I started to realize about myself, you know, I have a lot of these experiences and a lot of these feelings. And that uh, that led me through, you know, just some, you could call them online rabbit holes of exploring myself and the community, you know, what exactly I was feeling and if it was not normal or if it was. Once I come out, I had a a really wonderful teacher at my school who asked me my pronouns the first day I met her. And that signaled to me, you know, I knew she was someone I could talk to about. And so I started exploring through, I had had settled on a name at that point. And so I started exploring using that name in a public setting and presenting as a girl wearing dresses and that type of thing. By the time that summer came, I was actually pretty comfortable being very feminine and presenting as a woman in general. And a lot of that was due to the experience I had in school and also calling back to having supportive family. So coming out equals a lot of change, usually, right? Um, And you mentioned uh, that you change your speaking voice. Can you describe that process and how you kind of settled on a voice, how you taught yourself? Uh, What was that like? I've always enjoyed playing around with my voice and making different voices. So when I started looking into how to uh, feminize my voice, doing feminizing voice training, I was able to just follow some really pretty basic tutorials online. I didn't need to go to a therapist and I could do it myself. So even before I came out, I was working on my voice and I was able to uh, change it a good bit. I kind of just went until it was somewhere I was comfortable with and something I was happy with to hear myself. And it's a very common sentiment that a lot of trans women and men, I think it's maybe a little more prevalent in trans women, will almost overtrain their voice. So they'll go very far in one direction and sound very, very feminine. And over time, you know, scoot back a little to a little more of a comfortable talking voice, uh, which I I definitely did myself. Earlier, you mentioned some gender affirming care that you're receiving. Um, Do you feel comfortable describing the treatment for us? Yeah. So I won't go too in depth, but I believe it was early spring of 2021. I started on hormone blockers. I'm I was on two specific types. There's one called spironolactone, and the other one is norethindrone acetate. One tells your thyroid to stop sending messages to produce, in my case, testosterone. 
And the other medicine actually tells, you know, the parts of my body that do produce that testosterone to produce less when they receive that message. And so I was on that for about a year and a half before starting on estrogen, which I'm doing in the form of shots. So I inject it. It's a synthetic estrogen that my body picks up and distributes as if it was creating it. And that also helps suppress some of the testosterone production and also the effect, I believe. And that's where I'm at right now. You've also received mental health care with a therapist. How has that helped you in your journey? One thing that I think isn't necessarily always talked about is, I mean, you always hear about how difficult and how mentally straining being trans and having dysphoria can be. And oftentimes it is. Oftentimes that by itself is a source of immense anguish. But there's a lot of times, and especially for me, where it was a lot more of an underlying stressor. And my therapist has helped me talk through, I I was dealing with some self-harming at the time because of my identity uh, and lots of things. And he's also helped me just become more comfortable in my skin, kind of understand where some of these feelings may be coming from, also understand where other people's feelings may be coming from. You know, family whom it, it's a surprise when you come out, especially when you come out as trans, because that feels very different. And I think that's something that is is difficult to understand from the perspective of a trans person who it, it's so much to be dealing with. And so it almost feels like how could anyone else have struggles when I'm already dealing with so much? Why, why does this thing have to be a problem to them? On top of perspective shifts and ways to be comfortable with yourself and with other people in your life, um, you also discover that you're neurodivergent. How do you manage that diagnosis and does that play into your identity discovery? Yeah, so I've actually been diagnosed with OCD uh, and anxiety for quite a few years. It was a couple years before I really even started exploring my identity. And I think it maybe changes the way I, I think about myself some compared to a a neurotypical person and the combination of the two can really be a one-two punch and cause a lot of difficulty um ocd it's it's kind of hard to describe how that would impact my identity and the way i see myself i'm sure it has um, but i don't have any concrete ways to talk about that other than you know maybe i am a little more obsessive about some things or have certain times where I feel like I need to focus on something. And so that that could, you know, help with uh, transitioning and because you can get really set on something and that depending on the situation you're in can be helpful. So, June, you are a senior right now attending Fayetteville Virtual Academy and you're also taking college courses. When you came out in the winter of 2021, you were attending Springdale Public School. What's been your school experience as you emerged in this new identity and have become yourself? I actually had a kind of complicated 
relationship with schooling. When I, I mentioned I had a teacher who really helped me explore my identity socially and how I presented myself. That really helped. But, you know, the environment at Springdale is less accepting than some other schools uh, in the area. I think generally the teachers were either very kind and helpful or didn't have a strong opinion, at least that they showed. Um, but, you know, some of the students weren't the nicest. I never had anything targeted directly at me, but I think that may have been more due to my general extroversion and willingness to be myself but you know I had I knew people who I would like be hanging out with and they'd just get a slur thrown at them by another student so my parents uh, decided to put me into Haas Hall Academy at Fayetteville it was a generally more accepting environment I never had to deal with slurs or any general vitriol from students or teachers now I'm through Fayetteville Virtual Academy and going through the U of A, I haven't had any issues. I mean, I'm only two weeks in so far, but I haven't had any any struggles with harassment or anything. Do you have any advice for young trans folks such as yourself that are either beginning this journey or are on it? Do you have any words of wisdom, any encouragement? come out when you're safe. When you do know you're safe, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. It's very important to be physically safe over everything else. And not very far behind that is being able to be mentally safe. And coming out is a massive step in the process of becoming more mentally safe in yourself and in, in your community feel free to explore your identity. There are so many ways you can do that. And you don't have to talk to other people about that if you aren't comfortable with it. Um, it's very, it's a good thing to do. But if you need to just go online and figure out what on earth you're feeling, that's perfectly okay. June Simmons speaking with Taylor Johnson for our Listening Lab series, T, The Transgender Experience in Arkansas. T is filmed by Emerson Alexander, edited by Sophie Narani, and produced by Jacqueline Froelich. To learn more about the series, you can visit listeninglabkuaf.com. Do you have a story to tell? Come by the Listening Lab at KUAF and share it with us. All you have to do is go online to kuaflisteninglab.com and click on Share Your Story. And after submitting your request, we'll reach out to schedule a time for you to come by the KUAF studio. And you can listen to past conversations from the Listening Lab anytime at KUAFListeningLab.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Yesterday was the 79th anniversary of the birth of Bob Marley. More than 40 years after his death, he remains a global phenomenon. Saturday night, a celebration of his life in music will take place at George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville. Rochelle Bradshaw and Hip Notion will headline. Music also from the Irie Lions, Butterfly, Patty Steele, and Jeff Kearney. Last week, Rochelle and show promoter Wendy Love Edge were at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Recognizing the 79th anniversary of Marley's death 
also means, Wendy says, recognizing just how young Bob Marley was when he died. I was thinking about that when I saw 79. Mm -hmm. He was so young, right? And everything he accomplished in that packed short life. Exactly. Taught us all about love. Shooting star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they burn bright, but yeah. not for too long. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Rochelle, obviously you will be there yes. on stage, but it's not just you. No. <laughs> oh, no. So, first, of, I'll be there with my band, Hypnotion, extended version of Hypnotion. We've added several more players because we're trying to get that Whalers vibe going with the horns and everything. Yes. Uh, to start the night off, we have Butterfly coming up from Little Rock. We have our local heroes here, the Irie Lions, and Jeff Kearney, and my darling Patty Steele. It's going to be a fun night, and we can't forget DJ Hot Eye. He's going to start the night off. Why is it so important for the two of you to be involved in a celebration of Bob Marley's life? Ugh. Well, I'll go first. Please. Well, for me, it, I mean, my personal experience with Bob, Bob's music. I mean, I was a baby when, you know, I was yay high when he passed, but just growing up on that music and then being a part of the music uh, recording at the Tough Gong Studios and and going to the museum recording there and, and then eventually being in Stephen Marley's band, who Stephen Marley is Bob's second son. Um, so it was, it's very important to me to celebrate this to celebrate his life and his legacy. And that's why I'm doing it. Wendy? Well, first of all, I want to say anything that Rochelle Bradshaw invites me to be a part of, <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> um, first and foremost, so talented and creative and just beautiful. Um, and then, you know, I try to live my, love, my life in love, right? Um, and so I, I really resonate with the message of Bob Marley. Um, and... Uh, the music is beautiful. The lyrics just inspire me and grab my soul. And I think that will be the case on Saturday the 10th <laughs> with everyone in that room yes. celebrating such a beautiful soul. And, of course, you know, cannabis is my medicine. <laughs> and he spoke a lot about that. A lot. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> and was buried with, with some of it. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes, he was. 42 years since, almost 42 years since he passed. You're going to see a lot of people younger than 42 mm -hmm. in the audience, and that speaks to, I think, especially in middle America, Bob Marley is far more known and his music far more heard now than it was during his lifetime. I'm sure that's true. Oh, and definitely. I love seeing the young people dancing to, to those words, which yes. are mostly about love and life and and cannabis. And <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah, the, the audience, the, the, the age, the ages range, you know, because that's the beauty of Bob Marley's music. It sustains. It's, it sustains. So in 10 years, those people born 10 years from now are going to fall in love with Bob Marley. Mm -hmm. And the music will sustain them and their children, and their children's children. And he said it, you're going to tired to see my face. You're going to be tired to see my face. And he mm -hmm. passed in 81, and it's 2024 right now. We're still and looking at his face. The entire Life magazine <laughs> is dedicated 
to him. You're going to be tired of this face. <laughs> <laughs> We're not yet, though. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> For something like this, how quickly do you have your playlist ready, Rochelle? Oh, that was the hard part. I bet. It's so hard because I can't sing all the songs. I want to sing them all. <laughs> I mean, it's what, 10 albums, you know, that he did with Chris Blackwell. Nine he did with Chris Blackwell. Um, so it was very hard. So it took me over a month to really like, okay, this is it, and to send it to the guys. They were waiting. I was going to say, if you're going to have this expanded <laughs> version with the horns, they, they want to yes. know. They were waiting, but um, uh, I think we did a great job in selecting our songs for our set, and everyone else did too. There's so many songs, so many songs to choose from. Rochelle Bradshaw and Wendy Love Edge talked with me last week. And with us in the Anthony and Susan Hoy news studio that day was guitarist Jason Ward. Here are Rochelle and Jason recorded in our studio last Friday afternoon. standing over me They were all dressed in uniforms of brutality How many rivers do we have to cross Before we can talk to the boss And all we've got It seems we have lost We must really pay the cost And that's why we're gonna be burning and looting tonight Burning and looting tonight One more thing Burning all pollution tonight Oh yeah Burning all illusion tonight Stop them Just give me the greens and let me go Just let this roots girl take a blow Hey, I said All them, all them drugs Gonna get you slow It's not the music of the ghetto And that's why we're gonna be Burning and looting tonight So we're gonna burn and loot Burning and looting tonight One more thing Burning all pollution tonight 
burning all illusion tonight Rochelle Bradshaw, vocals, Jason Ward, guitar. The celebration of the 79th anniversary of Bob Marley's birth, Saturday night at George's Majestic Lounge on Dixon Street in Fayetteville. Doors open at 7. This is Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Emerson Alexander, Sophia Narani, and Jacqueline Froelich. We heard an excerpt from T, the Transgender Experience in Arkansas. You can hear that full conversation hosted by Taylor Johnson on our website, KUAF.com. You can also uh, hear the first episode of that that aired a couple weeks ago. Speaking of Listening Lab, the Traveling Listening Lab with Emerson Alexander uh, went to Butterfield Trail Village, talked to eight different couples about how they met, their romance, and we're going to be hearing those over the next few weeks as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Kyle. Yes. Uh, my story today was about the Arkansas caucus in 1984. As I was putting together the promo that we have every day for our show, we add music to it. I thought, what was the number one hit in 1984 in March when this happened? Uh, we oh. just talked about this off air. You're but, in my wheelhouse here. Uh, it was Jump by Van Halen. I decided not to use that. Instead, I used Owner of a Lonely Heart by the band Yes. It was the number one song uh, in late January of 1984. Um, any other ideas of some number one hits from early 1984? Well, okay, so in 1984, I don't know where you were, but I was living on Leverett Avenue in Leverett Gardens. It was my... That would have been my next to last year of college, and I was all about music. Yeah. Yeah, so give me give me some number ones. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so we had uh, Duran Duran in uh, June. Hungry Like the Wolf. This was actually The Reflex. Oh, oh okay. That was the number one hit. Uh, one of the big number one hits was from Prince in July. Would that have been Let's Go Crazy? When Doves Cry. Oh, God, such a good song. Uh, let's see. Uh, Madonna finished out the year with her number one hit. Ooh, end of 84. Vogue, that's Like a, little... a Virgin. That was 84? Boy, I thought that was earlier it, than that. Yeah, it's tail end of 1984. We'll be back tomorrow when it's still 2024. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, February 17th at Walton Arts Center with Defying Expectations, showcasing three works that push beyond barriers from Darius Mio's eclectic style to Louise Farang's bold third symphony and Max Brooks' acclaimed violin concerto featuring Sona concertmaster Winona Fifield. Tickets at sonamusic.org. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families Annual Soup Sunday is February 18th at the Rogers Convention Center, taking place from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. This family-friendly event includes soup samplings, breads, and desserts donated by over 30 local restaurants and vendors. 479-927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets.